Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. This morning, I want to talk very plainly and hopefully uh, in a way that will encourage you about this enemy who is within. Last week, if you remember, Rich Campbell opened our series on the pursuit of godliness with a very simple but helpful definition of godliness. To quote Rich, he said, Godliness is a passionate identification with Jesus Christ which results in a life pleasing to God. When I heard that last week, the pivotal word in that definition, you may have already guessed it, is the word passionate. Indeed, the whole definition to godliness turns on that one single word, the word passion. Webster's Dictionary defines passion as that which is enthusiastic, something that is of ardent love, of intense emotion, of zeal. The word passion has fire and an urgency about it. Even when we hear it, we think of that urgency, that sense of push that comes out of the human breast when a person is passionate. I found it interesting, though, as I looked up that word in Webster's, that it has a highly unlikely companion right next to it. In fact, if you open up Webster's Dictionary and look at the definition of passion, you can't help but drop down to the very next word that's found there in the dictionary, and that's the word passive. The word passive means inactive, to be static, dull. Passion, passive. An unlikely couple in the dictionary, but they do frame the two poles along the spiritual uh, spectrum of which we seek to pursue godliness. On the one hand, you find passion, which breathes into a person a sense of urgency to draw close to Christ. They have an understanding of what the real issues are about life, and that without Christ they are lost. And so there's a passion to adopt His life and His values and His vision. But at the other end, there is this passive identification with Christ that usually brings about to the personality who embraces that kind of identification, church attendance, acknowledgement of certain traditions, a periodic giving when it's convenient, maybe in its worst form, sheer hypocrisy, passion, passivity, you know, in mentioning that, probably most of you would be like me, and that is, boy, I don't want to be at that one end. I want to be passionate. And so the questions naturally pressed upon us, how does one find in themselves a passionate identification with Jesus Christ and for His values and for His lifestyle? This morning I have a very unusual answer to that question. It may surprise you. Because passion for Christ is found in a very unlikely place. Passion for Christ is drawn from a very unique well. A passion to identify with Jesus Christ is sourced, now listen carefully, 
is sourced in a terrifying understanding of my natural depravity and my personal sinfulness, which will possess me without God and lead me inevitably to very ugly consequences. That is the womb from which a passion for Christ is born. Understanding our sinfulness is the headwaters of spiritual passion. You know, the greatest of all preachers, C.H. Spurgeon, said in his autobiography in 1890, this perspective, a spiritual experience which is thoroughly flavored with a deep and bitter sense of sin is of great value to him that hath it. It is terrible in the drinking, but it is most wholesome later in life. We certainly prefer that form of spiritual exercise which leads the soul and makes it see its blackness before assuring it that it is clean every whit. Too many think lightly of their sin and therefore think lightly of their Savior. He who has stood before his God with a deep sense of being convicted and condemned with the rope about his neck is the same man who weeps for joy when he has been pardoned, who hates the evil which has been now forgiven him, and who lives to honor the Redeemer by whose blood he is found to be cleansed. It's amazing to me that to find this passion, one has to drink deeply of their own sinfulness. And yet it is true. I've had Christians tell me that they wish they had not grown up in a Christian home. Because of not having experienced in their mind firsthand a life of sin, they now feel that that is the cause for them having no passion for Christ. Rather, a dullness of spirit. One young Christian, and a lot of times it comes from young people, said it to me this way, it seems the really excited Christians are ones who for years were intense sinners. Playboys, drunks, druggies, party animals. They all seem to come from broken homes and bad environments. Those are the ones who in adulthood have an intense passion for Christ, and I don't. Well, I must confess, there is some truth in that observation. Those who most appreciate peace are those who fought in a war. Those who most appreciate life are those who at some point found themselves barely escaping death. And I, for one, can also personally testify that those of us who appreciate godliness, that many of us have grown up godless, and we know firsthand the ravages of godlessness in our life, and it creates a passion for the opposite. Still, when any Christian speaks of not having lived in gross sin as one of the reasons for them not being passionate about Christ, I feel that it be, is because not of having not lived in gross sin, but because they don't have a clear understanding of sin. It's a superficial understanding of sin. For instance, they have a superficial understanding of what sin is. Do you know what sin is? See, most of those young people think sin is just the practice of the gross kinds of sin, the murder, the adultery, the immorality, the drunkenness. 
But when one draws close to a perfect Savior, to a holy God, one finds sin in all kinds of shades and spectrums and varieties. But at the heart, the most vilest form of sin before a holy God is simply the absence of righteousness. If we understood, though it's very lawful to be greedy, it's lawful today, you won't go to jail for being jealous or lustful or idolatrous or self-centered or arrogant or prideful or a hypocrite. In many cases, those things aren't even considered in the list of the gross sins. But if you considered them before a holy God, and if you could see where those things were taking you in life, and if you could see the damage that you would ultimately inflict on yourself, on those around you, on your community, and the generations to come from your society, if you could see the ugliness of all that, you would run passionately to a Savior to help you. We also have a superficial understanding of our capacity to sin. Those of us who grow up in Christian homes often think because we've not seen it, seen it in its vilest form that somehow we are excused from the more heinous crimes. I hear people say around me at restaurants and various places, I can't believe that O.J. really did that. Well, maybe he didn't. But do you think you couldn't? Do you? You see, if your first impulse is to say, I don't think I could, you do not understand your capacity for evil. To say, I can't believe she did that, as if somehow that degree of sinfulness was somehow beyond me and my own personal capacity is a grievous error. You know, I've been with people, fine people, Christian people, people who have had a long track record of success. And yet, in the moment that I was with them, after a series of escalating circumstances and wrong turns and bad choices, you know what they're saying to me in that moment? I can't believe I did that. That I did that. But the Scriptures are very clear that our capacity is beyond anything you can imagine sitting here today. Listen, we, you, I, we're all capable of anything. Depravity does not mean that we are as bad as we could be. It just means we have the capacity and the bent to be as bad as we could ever imagine. If we could clearly see what we are right now becoming, if you're here this morning without Christ, or you're here this morning and you're not staying close to Christ, circumstances are good, things are peaceful at home, job is okay, but if you could see what you're becoming, even right now, with the absence of real righteousness, if you could look ahead, just a few months ahead, maybe a year ahead, or two years ahead, and if you could see the unthinkable that is waiting for you because of that bent towards yourself, you would run with passion to a Savior. Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes did a story on the Nazi Adolf Eichmann, the principal architect of the Holocaust. And at the outset, Wallace asked a central question. He said, how is it possible for a man to act like Eichmann acted? Was he a monster, a madman, 
Or was he something more terrifying? Normal. Wallace interviewed Yehiel Denur, one of the concentration camp survivors and the one who testified against Eichmann from Auschwitz at the Nuremberg trials. Before the interview began, there was a short film clip of Denur walking into the Nuremberg courtroom and walking past Adolf Eichmann. And as he walked past and the eyes met, Denur began to shake violently and he fainted. In the interview to follow, Wallace asked Denur, were you overcome by fear? No, said Denur. Seeing Eichmann in the courtroom made me realize he was not the godless, uh, uh, was not the godlike army officer I thought him to be. This Eichmann was simply an ordinary man, and then it hit me. I fainted because I was afraid for myself. I saw that I was capable of doing what he did. I'm exactly like he. Adolf Eichmann was normal. That is a terrifying expectation. And when we drink of that in our own lives, it causes something to take place in us, and that is to see that fear and to run passionately to one who thinks nothing but the best of us and who wants nothing but the best for us. That's how the pursuit of God godliness begins. Let me say what I said a few minutes ago. A passion to identify with Jesus Christ, His life, His values, is not found in the practice of sin. <laughs> sin kills. But it is found in an understanding of what sin is, deeply. Drinking deeply of that bitter cup. And that I am a sinner and capable of anything apart from Him. It is a terrifying understanding of my natural depravity. I want us to take a few sips this morning by looking through the Scriptures. If you would, start with Genesis. And I'm going to have you, you might put down your notes and we're going to go through several verses. So follow along with me as we see what the Scriptures say about our human condition. Starting at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Moses writes about a different era, but about the same humanity. He says in verse 5, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And then he adds, And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You know, we think of that as, That can't be true. That can't be me. But the Scripture says, no, that is you. And that is me. Look at Psalm 51. Psalm 51.5, written by David, who later had the characterization given to him as a man who had a heart for God. And yet as he reviews his own life, as he begs God in this psalm to be gracious to him, to wash him thoroughly, because of his own iniquity, to cleanse him from sin. He adds in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. It's not something I became. It's something I am. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Turn over just a few pages to Psalm 58. It says the same thing from a different angle. It says in verse 3, The wicked are estranged where? When? Because of poor parenting? Because of bad schools? It says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. 
And those who speak lies go astray from birth. Turn to Ecclesiastes, where the great philosopher Solomon makes another statement in this same regard. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Solomon was a realist in this whole book. All the way through it, he looked at man for what he really is. And here in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 3, he makes a startling statement about us. He says this, There is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. And afterwards, they go to the dead. Look at Jeremiah, one of the great prophets, who just a little further in your Old Testament, what he says about the heart. And by the way, the heart is the place of who we are. It's our thoughts. It's our will. It's our mind. But yet in Jeremiah 17.9, this statement flows out of the prophet's lips. Jeremiah 17. Verse 9. The heart, your heart, is more deceitful than all else. All else. Not your friends, not your circumstances. Your heart, my heart, is deceitful beyond all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Let's go to the words of Jesus Himself over in the Gospel of Matthew, or excuse me, the Gospel of Mark. And we want to look at Mark chapter 7. And it's interesting as we read this, He's speaking to religious people. Mark chapter 7. It's good to see these things in print. Not just somebody preaching it. I want you to read it. Mark 7, verse 14. And after he called the multitude to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which going into him can defile him. Boy, does that go cross grain against our day? It was mom and dad who defiled me. It was my environment that defiled me. Defiled me. It was the lack of resources that defiled me. And Jesus says, Listen, all of you, there's nothing going in that defiles. Nothing. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Look at verse 20. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceeds the evil thoughts and the fornications and the thefts and the murders and the adulteries and the deeds of coveting and wickedness as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness, all these evil things proceed from within and they defile a man. Let's look at Romans chapter 1, which is one of the great apologies of the Christian faith. This letter has never been equaled by any theologian. But in the beginning of the letter... Paul looks onto the landscape of humanity and what God is offering to humanity and how humanity is responding to these various offerings of himself. I want you to listen to it as I read, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Notice, suppress. 
Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Yet even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and, fool and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their own hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to their own degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function. And in the same way also the men abandoned, abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent evil. They're disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And my friend, the righteous person would kind of puff his chest up as those who read this opening letter probably did until they got to chapter 3. And in chapter 3 of the very next uh, page, verse 9, he punctures the puffed up heart of the so-called righteous man when he says, What then, are we better than they? Not at all. For we are already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now some of you are probably thinking, well, those would make great verses to put on the refrigerator, aren't you? <laughs> Not at all. Those verses terrify us. But those verses tell us in stereo the condition of our own heart. Theologians call these scriptures the depravity of man, the fallen nature of man. The great systematic theologian Augustus Strong defined depravity this way. Human depravity means that man is supremely determined. And just think of yourself as I read this. In his whole inward and outward life by a preference for self to God. Man possesses an aversion to God which though sometimes latent and hidden becomes active enmity as soon as God's will comes into manifest conflict with his own will. Then man is disordered and corrupted in every faculty through this substitution of self instead of supreme affection towards God. 
Therefore, he or she is subject to a law of constant progress and depravity for which one alone has no recuperative energy to successfully resist. Some of you may have read in the Dallas Morning News the report of an elderly woman, Evelyn Geffers. Evelyn had ended a decade of procrastination when she went to the doctors at Parkland Hospital and asked them to remove an ovarian tumor that at the time of surgery weighed 156 pounds. Can you believe that? I'm going to have a life now, Geffers said, who was awed at seeing half her body weight gone after the surgery. The article says for the last three years, the tumor swelled to become bigger than a beanbag chair and embarrassed Geffers barely left home except to go to church. By the beginning of May, she was having trouble breathing and her legs hurt from the pressure on her circulation. The five foot four woman couldn't lie back flat for fear her lungs would be crushed. Geffers, who measured 80 inches around, startled doctors and nurses when she arrived at the hospital on May 20th. Just getting the tumor off the operating table required planning, said Dr. David Miller. We had several stout people standing by. And yet Miller predicted Geffers will make a full recover, although her body will take a while to adjust. Meanwhile, Geffers have a, has a message for people who are putting off not going to the doctor. <laughs> you can't go too soon, she said. It's not going to get any better. Now that incredible story serves as a wonderful metaphor of our condition. Did you hear some of the analogies there? First of all, let me pose some for you. Mrs. Geffer's problem was not caused by external circumstances, but by an internal condition. She could not blame her husband for the tumor, her employer, her mom or her dad. The problem was in her and it affected everything she did. Our problem, our chief enemy in life, the person who will assault us more than any other through this pilgrimage on planet Earth is in us. It's not out there. The problem is not out there. The problem, the chief enemy is right in here, embedded deeply in the core of our being. And it affects everything we do, every perspective. Secondly, Mrs. Geffer's problem was compounded by time. The longer she tried to ignore her condition, the worse it got. And not only that, the more complicated and uncomfortable life became until it was absolutely intolerable. My unaddressed depravity, ignoring what I consider little things, because nobody's calling attention to them, Allowing those things to go unaddressed, I want you to know the sinful nature does not remain static. It grows. And in time, it crushes out all that is sacred and virtuous about life on the altar of self. All of it. And life will get uglier. And if it doesn't get uglier, it'll get emptier. And if it doesn't get emptier, it will be more compromised till much of who you were determined to be by Jesus Christ, who you could have been, is snuffed out and eradicated. It won't get any better over time. And then thirdly, Mrs. Geffers could do nothing about her problem. Personally, she was helpless. 
defenseless. Her only hope was in what someone else, namely a physician, could do for her. Did you know one of the greatest Christians of all time, the Apostle Paul, felt exactly that same way? I want you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. And I want you to see, hey, this is not Mrs. Geffer's problem. And this is not just my problem, as weak as I am. You can pick some of the strongest people you could ever imagine. It's their problem too. Look at Romans 7. I'm going to start in verse 14. And I want you to see an apostle's secret to his pursuit of godliness. Because he tells us. These next 10 verses is the secret to his passion. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I know that I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Have you been there? But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law concerning, confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin, which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. That's an apostle speaking. For I practice for the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man that is in my mind. Do you do that? Sure you do. But look at verse 23. But I see a different law in the members of my body. They wage war against the law of my mind, and they make me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? That's the context for the next verse. The passion. Thanks be to God, it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord. To see the terror of that and what it means and the impotence of my life in trying to contend with those things, thinking I can just pull it off, no, it drove an apostle to the cross, to Christ, to His values, begging Him to save Him. That was the passion to identify with Jesus Christ. But when you read those verses, where do you focus most? The first 10 that I read? Or verse 25? Is the tumor growing in your life? The tumor of depravity? Is the addiction growing? Is the anger building? Is the bitterness deepening? Is the emptiness expanding? If you're smart and you really drink deeply of this bitter cup, you will be driven to Christ. Save me. Save me. Our world, of course, rejects all of that. Our world cannot even begin to say that man is evil. For the last 90 years, most social theory in our country, politically, educationally, philosophically, has been based on the innate goodness of man. Man's problem is his environment, and that allows us not to be responsible. Man's problem is others and what they've inflicted on him, so I get to feel like a victim. 
Man's problem is that he lacks resources. So at the very worst, I can speak about myself. I can simply say I am deprived. But don't tell me. Don't you dare tell me. I'm depraved. I'm good. And if you'll just provide the right handling of my goodness, you will help me to greatness. That has been the social theory of our country. There are some who feel like the only ingredient needed for the goodness of man is education. But where is the basis for that? Have you not read history? Have you not seen that if education is all man needs, why is it that the most horrific evils, the most heinous crimes, the worst catastrophes ever inflicted on humanity have come from well-educated men? Education brings enlightenment. Education makes one sophisticated. Education cannot make one good. There are some who thinks that all man needs is to have his self-esteem raised. A lot of the stuff now going on in our inner cities and in our neighborhoods is to raise children's self-esteem. If they just felt better about themselves, if they felt more positive about themselves, then they would be good. And so for the last decade, we have been on a self-esteem crusade in our country. And today, Americans are feeling better about themselves. If you took a poll, as they did back in 1940, and asked Americans, are you an important person? 11% of the women and 20% of the men would say yes. Recently, they did that same poll in 1992. Are you an important person? 66% of the women and 62% of the men said, I am an important person. And so, crime is increasing, murder is at record highs, child abuse is everywhere, Ju juvenile delinquency has expanded into every neighborhood, there is rape, spouse abuse, drugs, addictions, divorce, morality is at an all-time low, but hey, it's all done by very important people. <laughs> and you know what else? After they do it, when they get them in the police car, they drive away feeling real good about themselves. Because self-esteem makes you feel better, but let me tell you what it can't do. It can't make you good. It can't. All man needs is good government. Man is good. If he just adds good government, what that will equal is utopia. And we've heard that over and over again. Just get him a good job. Just provide him a good bed. Take care of him. He'll become good. This hardly needs to even be mentioned in my message, by the way. But I want to say one thing. I watched, very interestingly, uh, a, a broadcast on trying to help impoverished inner-city single parents find jobs. And in this particular program, they had invested millions of dollars in going into the inner city, in providing a good living environment, helping these women to get good training, good prenatal care, and all that goes with it, providing them their own personal counselor, each one of them, just like a parent. And they did that for them, and they went through years of training, and they came to the place where they now had not just jobs, but well-paying jobs, and 90% of them refused to work when they got to that point. And here's how the broadcast ended with the social worker in charge saying, I think we have a deeper problem here. <laughs> you bet there's a deeper problem. It is embedded at the very core of their being. And it's called sin. It's called depravity. I like what 
one liberal-minded scholar, C.M. Jode, said. He said, self-delusion about human nature is the reef waiting to make a wreck out of any ideology that wanders out of the narrow channel. It is because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that we on the left have always been disappointed in our programs. And I might add, we on the right have always been disappointed in our church. Because we've not come to terms with how deep this problem is in our own lives. The solution for man's condition can be generally summarized two ways. First, one must surrender their life. You can't make it better. You can't work it to being better. The only answer to man is surrender of the self to Christ by faith. Some can do that after they've discovered in their life a two-ounce tumor. Others of us, it takes a little bit more growth before we come to that realization. Only when life itself is being threatened by this 156-pound boulder, we finally come to a place where we can no longer deny we have a problem. Only when the quality of one's life is at a virtual standstill, when tragedy is on the horizon, will they see themselves for what they really are in the members of their body, and that is selfish and evil and fallen, anything but good. And when they understand that, there's a great relief because there's a road, a very clear road to a Savior who can deliver them from that nature. That's why Jesus looked at a religious man and said, listen, buddy, you must be born again. You're not going to get it by education. You're not going to get it by your theological training. You're not going to get it by going to the synagogue every Sabbath to eternity. You're going to give it by total reconstruction of your heart, and that can only be done when you surrender your will, your obstinate, arrogant, you think you know it all will to Jesus Christ. And if you don't, you'll die. But there's a second line that goes with that for most of us here this morning, and that is not only must we surrender, but we must cling to Christ throughout our life. This is the passion for survival, and it is for survival. Have you been watching the floods in Georgia? I watched the other night where three guys had been swept off the road and they'd gotten out of their car just in time before it was washed away and they were clinging desperately to a tree. And let me tell you, you could look on their faces as they were trying to be reached by some rescuers that for them, there were only two choices in life. The tree or death. And I want you to know, they were passionate for the tree. <laughs> they were. They were deeply in love with that tree. They hugged it so tight. They praised it. Because that tree was the difference between them and death. If we fully understood our depravity, our selfishness, our capacity for evil, let me tell you, you wouldn't sleep in every morning. You wouldn't. You wouldn't ignore what God's Word said on every circumstance. You would feel impelled to take a look at it for fear of the ramifications both in this life and in eternity for ignoring this rescue 
Because it's just as much a rescue at that moment, in that decision. You would not take your friends lightly when they say, hey bud, you got a problem. You would listen. Because in here is desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's the issue. The problem is, is that when life clears up, you know, when you're, you know, we, we don't, we're, not, we're not living in a flood. We can't feel the flood raging waters, though they're there. Our flesh continually sounds the all clear signal. It's okay. You can let go. You can come out. The danger is past. You can go passive now and just attend church. You weren't that bad anyway. The flesh will reason with us. You can handle it next time. Besides, now that you've gone through that, you're smarter. You're wiser. You're stronger. So go ahead. Tell God you want to go for a swim. And so you do. And you find afresh that there are only two options in life. Christ or death. That's the options. It is drinking out of that cup that makes me want to be passionate in my pursuit of godliness. I have to confess, first of all, I don't understand at all. But you know, the longer I live, I understand a lot more. And I discover with every year that what Jesus Christ has said is true. And what I thought was true was not. And I either am going to learn it with a thousand lashes on a fool's back, or I'm going to learn it by faith in a God that I am convinced has the very best for me. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now let me conclude here by just offering you three applications if you're in the pursuit of godliness. And we'll move on to the benefits of godliness and how you grow in godliness, giving those insights. But boy, let me just say this from the outset. There's nothing more than I want that I want in a church than a group of people who have passion for Jesus Christ. But we have to start here in the ugliness. And so these three applications. First, my depravity means that most of my problems in life are found in here, not out there. Now that's hard for us sometimes. It's hard for, and I, I tell you, the shock on people's face when I say to them, you know, it's probably not your marriage. It's you. They can't believe it. The audacity. It's me. It's not me. It's my marriage. But they don't understand because crashing down at that moment in my mind is a thousand theological premises of why their heart is wicked. It's not my work. It's me. It's not that person I'm in conflict with. It's me. The greatest danger is within. Secondly, my depravity means I must not trust myself but God in every circumstance. That's why first, uh, excuse me, that's why Proverbs 14:12 says, "There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death." And that's not in big issues only, like why I'm deciding to leave my family. Or whether I'm deciding you know, to quit my job. It's in the little things. It's in those little moments when we're telling that what we think is little white lie, but down the road is a point that we never intended to get and God knows it. And He's trying to save you from it right there. 
but it looked so right. It felt good. But the way of the wicked heart is death. Thirdly, depravity means I must work to stay close to Christ. Let me say it again. Depravity means I must work to stay close to Christ. Otherwise, I will fall back into the currents of self. 1 Timothy 4.7 says it plainly. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. It's not easy. It wasn't intended to be easy. It wasn't easy for Jesus. It's hard to make room for God in my life. It's hard to get up and look at His Word. It's hard to take time out of a busy schedule and be quiet and for the first time before I make that business deal or before I issue that decree or before I make some cataclysmic change in my life, it's important to say, God, what do you think? I'm going to listen. I'm going to contemplate. I'm going to be there to renew myself, to strengthen myself, to resolve, to obey, even when they say, if you do, you're fired, buddy. But all of that comes out of work. But it's a blessed work. It's a glorious work because it energizes all of life. But you have to take time. If you don't, you will find the other option. It may be slow and subtle at first, and then the stream may become more swift, and then you find yourself in the white water of messes that you never intended to do, crying out right before you plunge under, wretched man that I am, who will save me from the body of this death? But I want you to know what's so exciting for me to tell you. It's just as you're going under with one hand, you'll hear this cry back from heaven. Thanks be to God. <laughs> it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, these are sobering words here this morning. And certainly... In speaking this way, it's not the intent to beat anyone down. It's simply the realization of how things really are. Father, the frightening aspect of what I could become drives me to know what you want me to become. It pushes me into a pursuit of godliness. It reminds me that without you, I can do nothing it tells me that if I'm not spending time with you, if I'm not reviewing my life before your word and your spirit, if not, I'm not stepping out in faith, sometimes radical faith, there's a good chance that down the road, I'll be saying, I can't believe I'm doing this. Oh God, save us. And create in our heart, not just a clean heart, but create in us a passionate spirit for the wonderful pursuit of godliness. It's in Jesus' name we pray and for His sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.